Good afternoon, everybody, friends, relatives, countrymen. It's good to be here. Welcome to another two hours of lively conversation and commentary on the world as it applies to us here in the best little city in America. Uber producer Dan Peters and I will be here through five o'clock talking about news, politics, science, music, film, all kinds of good stuff. Maybe a little bit of transportation thrown in for good measure. Thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us today. Whether you're in a car, you're in an office somewhere, you're on your computer, you're watching it live on Facebook, which you can do every day here for about an hour or so. I try and run that Facebook live. And so you can look behind the scenes here at Information 1000 KSOO and, uh, you know, see how the sausage, 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 sausage is made. And, uh, you know, it's good sausage, tasty sausage. It's like that stuff you get down at Schmeckfest kind of sausage. It's tasty. I like it. Been a long time since I've done a Schmeckfest in Freeman. Uh, you gotta, you know, you ought to think about it. I, it's been a long time since I did a Schmeckfest too. So you probably have done Schmeckfest right. You know, like take it all in. You know, go to the theater and all of that, right? No, actually, I was there to to cover the event, so oh, I never really okay. did do the do the full full the deal at Schmeckfest. <laughs> I will say this: I have not been there a lot either, and, and I. Um, but you will smell things at Schmeckfest <laughs> that you've never smelled in your life, in a good way, in a good way. It's a kind of a wonderful event. I don't know how we got on Schmeckfest, Dan, but uh, it is a beautiful and blustery day out there. Uh, I had a tough little ride into work today, but it's nice out, so it's, it's not so bad. And at least it's flat, right? It's flat, right? Is it? Flat? Is it flat? We know, you know, we, we live under this sort of mythology, maybe, that we live in a flat place. And uh, we were just making fun of North Dakota the other day because that place is truly flat. Yeah, because if you've ever driven that hill mm-hmm. west of Chamberlain along the Missouri River, you know that we're not exactly flat. Of course, then you also have the Black Hills and the yep. Badlands, so there's some yep. elevation change there. Exactly. And But, you know, we like to think of ourselves as, as very flat other than that. Well, I was reading this very interesting item that was posted on the Atlantic magazine this week about a a bunch of guys down in Kansas who did a scientific analysis of how flat each state really is. And they they started with this phrase, you know, uh, because Kansas was once called flat as a pancake, and they're like, is it? And so they did kind of a really interesting topographical analysis using, you know, uh, GIS data and satellites and and a pancake uh, to figure out what exactly, how flat is flat as a pancake. And uh, I posted this study up on our Twitter feed, at P. Lally Show, if you want to go read the whole story. Anyway, uh, we figure, I figure, well, we got to be pretty flat. Um, this is the Great Plains, after all, the wind-swept expanse of flyover country that we all experience. You know, and, and, and it's true, it can be flat. Now, we know, as I said, we're not as bad as North Dakota, uh, that, and it's correct that up there it's pretty flat. But as it turns out in this study, North Dakota is actually the seventh flattest state in the nation south dakota what do you where do you think we were dan i mean throw some throw out a number 11 wrong Ooh, close we're actually 17th though 17th flattest state in the country that's not that bad that means we have you know undulation that's pretty good as you mentioned the black hills helps us a little bit but the way they did this it was as a, a proportion of your state that is actually flatter than a pancake. So the way they did the, uh, the study 
we came out pretty good. Um, but we are, in fact, less flat than Minnesota, which is fifth, and Iowa, which is 13th. And you don't think of those as flat states, right? Well, I think, if well, if you've ever driven Interstate 90 across the southern portions of Minnesota, there's mm-hmm. a lot of flat there going through there. Flat. There's not a lot of elevation change between and you know, Albert the, Lee and Sioux Falls. Right, and they got all those forests and stuff, but that's that's pretty flat. It could be pretty flat, even though it's pretty. It's got the lakes. Lakes are flat. Maybe that's why they're so low. 10,000 lakes. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of flat surface there. Don't You don't get much undulation on the water. Uh, anyway, the flattest state in the nation is actually Florida, according to this analysis, which is not that surprising because Florida also quite flat. There's a lot of swamp. There. There's a lot there. of swamp. Again, water. Uh, and then in order, Illinois um, and North Dakota. Oh, they, I'm sorry. I had North Dakota as seventh. I think they're actually like third. Louisiana, Minnesota, Delaware, Kansas, Texas, Nevada, Indiana, all flatter than us. So they got these places got nothing on us. If you've ever ridden a bike out there, you know that it's tougher than it looks. Uh, so, you know, but we've also got the Missouri River Valley, the Big Sioux River Valley, and there's, you know, plenty of undulation between the two. So there you go. Not as flat as we thought. It's a good way to start the day. We've got a great show for you today. Our guests include Dr. Kurt Griffin. He is a diabetes expert with Sanford Research. And uh, Dr. Griffin's been on the show before, uh, and he's doing some fascinating work over there at Sanford. But there's also some news about diabetes in general. It is a crisis that's just getting worse across the world. Uh, Dr. Griffin works with type 1. Type 2 is uh, a a bigger issue at this point, but uh, we're going to talk about both. Scott Hudson will be in for Weird Friends. Uh, Dorothy Borum is the director of an independent film called Corrupt, which is showing on Sunday. And we talked about this film yesterday with Jamie Weedy of Indie Events. Uh, But... uh, Ms. Borman is from Lincoln, Nebraska, and she's going to be here for the screening on Sunday, so we're going to talk to her a little bit. And we're going to talk about how friendly Sioux Falls is to bikers, because that's been a topic for me lately. And I'll have the P&L statement just after the break. Today's update, uh, it's just variations on the stupid man. More more stupid man stuff and uh, a little bit of pipeline news and, you know, maybe maybe some Trump. That's all coming up next on The Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. 316 on The Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. And here we are trying to get closer to free for another day on the Patrick Lally Show and the PL Statement. Looking through the news, it's hard, it's hard to get away from the cavalcade that is the stupid man update. And uh, they just keep coming. A uh, couple, couple big ones today, uh, of course. You've been hearing about them in the news. You got Matt Lauer. He was uh, whacked over there at, uh, at uh, NBC on the Today Show for inappropriate sexual behavior. And uh, Garrison Keeler says he was fired over alleged improper behavior, and there's a lot coming out on that as well. Uh, First, Mr. Lauer. um, So there was a report to uh, the muckety-mucks there at NBC that, uh, you know, alleging some inappropriate behavior by Mr. Lauer, and we don't really know what it is yet. 
And NBC says uh, that it was the first time any complaint had been lodged against him. And uh, but the the uh, head of uh, NBC News there, Andrew Lack, he said uh, they were pre- also presented with reason to believe this may not have been an isolated incident. So, boom, Lauer gone. He's the second TV morning host in a week to lose his job over sexual misconduct. Uh, of course, Charlie Rose got whacked as well. Uh, Garrison Keeler, this was, I don't know if this is more shocking or not, but it seems more shocking. Uh, and he uh, also had been retired from hosting a Prairie Home Companion. But today NPR said that they are going to cut all connection with him and change the name of the show that's still going and, uh, you know, get rid of the replays and anything like that. All connection, all ties cut to Keeler. Um, he says uh, Keeler had told the Associated Press uh, that he was fired, quote, over a story that I think is more interesting and more complicated than the version NPR heard. Um, but he basically says, you know, I'm 74 or whatever. I'm not going to I'm not going to fight this. Uh, he told the Star Tribune later that um, he had touched a woman's back. And, you know, you can go read that and see if you believe any of it. Um, but bam, gone. So we probably won't be hearing much from Mr. Keeler again. Uh, you know, I see it's kind of interesting because this is these two and Charlie Rose and everything else that's happened in media. I think it's evidence that there's become a zero tolerance policy for inappropriate behavior in media and much of entertainment. Um, it doesn't seem to be the same standard as politics for some reason. And where these guys hold on in hopes that it's going to go away. Um, ultimately, however, you know, voters will get to decide that uh, if they care, if they still care about that sort of thing. And we're going to find out whether it's Al Franken or uh, Roy Moore or any of the number of uh, state level people who have been uh, charged with or made allegations against um, for their behavior. Um, we see it locally here. We see it in Minnesota. We see it in Iowa at the state level. So it's, um, as I said, a cavalcade of accusations. Uh, and, you know, the, the question always becomes, is it true? Is it not true? And there is this sense that you have to believe it, that if the person's credible, then it, you know, and, and that's that's a tough position for people in media to be in because, we're covering it. People in media are covering it. We're talking about it. So even if there's a hint of inappropriate behavior, the person's going to get whacked. That's, that's all there is to it. And that's, you know, whether it's right or wrong, that's the way it's going to be. Um, what we do know is that sexual harassment and inappropriate sexual behavior is bad, and that is wrong. And if nothing else comes out of this, this no, a notion that a woman can raise allegations with less fear of retribution, uh, I think is important. Now, we'll see how it all shakes out. Um, There's a lot more shoes to fall in terms of the broader uh, social mores. Um, But it's clearly, clearly not over. Uh, Pipeline debate. Locally here, the Keystone said that they, uh, in their report, that the spill up there of the 210,000 gallons up in northeastern South Dakota was due to weights that were placed on the pipeline that they do during construction in 2008. And uh, that's what caused it. And they still say that no uh, 
They don't believe the leak polluted any surface water bodies or drinking water systems. Uh, the company disclosed the buried pipeline leak on agricultural land in Marshall County on November 16th. You all remember that. It's still 210,000 gallons, uh, and they are working on cleaning up the rest of that, I believe. Um, and working on a, uh, a, control, a safe, controlled, and gradual startup of the pipeline that will proceed over the next couple of days. You know, I, I still maintain that pipelines in and of themselves aren't the problem. This is human error, maybe, or a uh, engineering error. Uh, they need to be regulated, strictly monitored. All of that is important, but I don't think this says pipelines are inherently dangerous to our health. Um, but we'll see. I could, you know, I could be, I could change my opinion on these things, but that's what I believe right now. Uh, but I want to turn my attention to the latest Trump um, tweet ism. And uh, obviously the president, and you've heard he's on the stump today, pushing the, uh, pushing the tax plan. And you're going to hear a lot about that. Uh, I'm going to veer away from the tax plan for today. Uh, it looks like the Senate is uh, going to have a vote on that yet this week. And, you know, it could very well pass. I, they still have to reconcile with the House. There's a ways to go. Um, but this thing about this morning, uh, according to the AP, President Donald Trump retweeted a string of inflammatory videos Wednesday that purported to show violence being committed by Muslims, drawing quick condemnation from civil rights groups who said the president was fanning anti-Muslim sentiment just as he did during his camp his presidential campaign. So these videos uh, were from a person named Jada Franson, who's deputy leader of the far-right organization called Britain First, which is a fringe British group whose profile was elevated by this attention. Um, The tweets, the group's tweets read, uh, video, Islamist mob pushes teenage boy off roof and beats him to death. And video, Muslim destroys a statue of Virgin Mary. And video, Muslim migrants beat up Dutch boy on crutches. Um, you know, it's not clear where those videos are coming from. According to the AP, uh, they've been debunked. Some of the, the, a lot of the videos of this, that this group uh, circulates have been debunked as not being true. Um, and the, this British Britain first is a group that opposes multiculturalism and what it calls the Islamization of Britain it has run candidates in local and national elections with little success and has campaigned against the construction expansion of mosques. Uh, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders today was asked about it, and I watched a little bit of that. Uh, but she said um, she defended the posts of the president, who didn't comment. He just retweeted them. But, of course, he's got a huge platform. Just a retweet brings a lot of attention. He, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders later defended the president's tweets, saying, he wants to, quote, promote strong borders and strong national security. Which, you know, she was asked if the president had a responsibility to verify the conduct. And she said, whether it's a real video, the threat is real. And that is what the president is talking about. So, I, I mean, I don't, I'm just, I'm kind of flabbergasted by this whole thing. Okay. This is odd behavior for a president. What's the point? What's the point of retweeting this stuff? He doesn't know if it's real. He's just throwing it out there. What do we hope to gain by demonizing other human beings? This is what dehumanization actually looks like, okay? It's dehumanization that opens the door to violence, that allows us to justify our perception of superiority over other people because they're different from us. It's not that much different 
than what the Serbs did to the Croats and the, and the, the Muslim Bosnians in the breakup of the Yugoslavia. It's no different than what, the, uh, what happened between the, in Rwanda. It's not that much different. It's dangerous and foolish behavior that has nothing to do with politics or the policy of this nation. I don't know where this is going, but he needs to stop doing this for the good of the country. I just think it's a propaganda campaign, and it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't have anything to do with the president's policies. It doesn't have anything to do with what he is uh, wants this nation to be or wants this nation to do. And just, you know, let's disagree or agree with the policies. But what does this, what does demonization of human beings using purportedly false, just made up videos, what does that have to do with anything? How does that make us better? I'm not seeing it. We can't have a legitimate policy debate in this atmosphere, and we have large issues to tackle. This is not conservatism. This is not the Republican Party. It's not populism. It's the worst of the ideas of nationalism disguised as patriotism. And it is, and it always, always ends badly. So please, Mr. President, just stop doing that. Be the president. Agree or disagree, you can always reach me, Patrick at KSO.com. You can... Uh, Jump on our Twitter feed at P. Lally Show and uh, throw us a message or two, whatever you happen to think one way or the other. Uh, I always look forward to hearing from you folks. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with Scott Hudson on the Weird Friends segment. We'll talk a little bit about Lydia Loveless and uh, some of the aspects of her connections to us here in the great city of Sioux Falls. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. Three thirty-four on the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO. And some smithereens to bring in our next guest for Weird Friends, Scott Hudson. Scott, uh, you know, throwing a little smithereen. You're a smithereens guy, aren't you? Yeah, it's been a while since I heard that. Though. I know. I Kind of nice to hear again. I came across it today and I thought, yeah, that works. A little smithereens. Yeah, why not? They've played here a couple times, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't ever catch the show, but I, I know they were here. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember any details, but I know I was there. <laughs> <laughs> Great Which band. might say a lot about how that night went. <laughs> I don't think we need to go into that now, right? Okay. Um, so... You, uh, we talk a little bit about Lydia Lovelace and uh, your connections to Lydia Lovelace uh, in previous shows, but the, uh, and I think last week we talked about uh, that the, uh, the DVD was coming out and, and all that. Uh, it, what else was, there's a bunch of stuff going on with her. What, what was all that? I can't remember. Well, I mean, in October, she had a singles collection that came out. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but last Friday was, was a big day for her and for me and for my director friend, Gorman Bichard, mm-hmm. uh, because Who Is Lydia Loveless came out on DVD, and there was also uh, a special record store six-song live, record store day, 
Six Song Live EP that is music from the movie. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, it was a big day, and I had I had Gorman on my sh- my show, The Ledge, last Friday night, and it was funny. Uh, without being prompted at all, he said that his favorite night of filming was the night where uh, the previous night the band had played in North Dakota, and the next night they were playing in Omaha. So uh, guess where they stayed? Um, the Ramcota? No. <laughs> uh, they stayed at your house. Yes, yes. And uh, it was, it was, I couldn't really say any, I mean, I knew they were going to stay here, and I couldn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had people after the fact, oh, why didn't you call me to come over? It's like, I couldn't. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. So, yeah. The movie, uh, the documentary that uh, Gorman made uh, about Lydia is, uh, who, is Livy, who is Lydia Loveless? Is that the name yes. of it again? And yes. so that's out now too, right? Yes, yes. And so you buy all this stuff as one package? How's that work? Well, the, the, the EP came with a copy of the DVD. Got it. Which is really cool. Um, uh, yeah, and the, 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 the extras. He, Gorman is one of those geeky guys that puts a lot of extras on DVDs. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that night that they were here, she pulled out her, her guitar and just started playing some songs. And, uh, of course, we filmed it. Of course. And so uh, one, of, one of the extras is the living room performance. Ah, cool. So you can yeah. see uh, Lydia playing in Scott Hudson's living room in yep. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's pretty cool. So yeah, how, my ju- jukebox in the background. That's cool. You <laughs> should probably, we should probably remind people uh, who Lydia is and how you got connected with her. Uh, she is from Columbus, Ohio. She's on Bloodshot Records. I first heard of her, I don't know, right after her first album came out. Um, Gorman is a director that I've known for a few years because I first thought, I first met him when he made the Color Me Obsessed documentary on The Replacement. Mm-hmm. And then he did um, a documentary on Husker Du's Grant Hart, who died a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And so I've been kind of, you know, in touch with him through all of his movies and um the lydia loveless project came about at a time where my life had kind of changed i had a lot more free time Mm -hmm. so he's like well why don't you come help oh cool okay yeah so i spent three weeks uh one week was you know filming interviews in columbus another week was uh filming her as she recorded the album that eventually became the album real which is about a year and a half old now and then uh, we filmed a, a Midwest tour of St. Paul, a couple of North Dakota shows, and uh, in Omaha. And uh, I have since, since this all started, I've uh, had a chance to listen to it, and she's quite good. And that, we've got a song here I want to play so people can actually hear Lydia. It's uh, More Like Them. That's the name of the tune. Yes. And uh, we're going to play a little bit of it here and come back and talk in just a second and see if this works. Yeah.
get a sense there of what she sounds like, and she just has a powerful voice, Scott. Yeah, I mean, there were, she, you know, I get asked all the time, well, who does she sound like? And it's like, a little bit Wanda Jackson, a little bit Loretta Lynn, but then the replacements are in there, and also the, you know, um, um, the Stones, even. You know, it's just, it's a wonderful combination of influences. Uh, and she, um, she, she actually has some of that, there's a hint of like old country, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And her her earlier records were more country. Yeah, let's hear. She's just becoming a more of, more of a rocker as she uh, is getting to be the old age of 24, I believe she is now. Yeah, let's hear <laughs> just a little more. good stuff and uh, like i said i've really gotten to enjoy it the past uh, uh few uh weeks actually months since this all since the movie all started and everything so you must be very proud to have participated in that yeah it was it was it was a lot of fun i mean it's not often that you that a you get to have your one of your favorite bands stay at your house and b have your house become part of a documentary it just doesn't doesn't happen that way but the, the highlight for me actually was being in the studio with them while she recorded. I mean, you, she's got, a, like you said, a powerful voice. Imagine sitting in a, a vocal room with a camera and listening to her, you know, sing these songs. You know, it sounds a cappella to you. She's listening on her headphones, but you're just hearing her voice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's pretty cool. So is she ever going to come back here and play? We want to go see her now, man. I hope so. I mean, she was here, uh, when was the Drive-By Truckers first here? Uh, it's been a while now, and I missed that it. That was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. Last September. Uh, hopefully she'll come back soon. That'd be cool. We'll have to talk to you. They can stay uh, at my house again. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you're uh, hooking up with Gorman. That's That's been a, a nice little uh, side interest for you, and he's actually working on, he's sort of involved with this uh, Jay Bennett Wilco project, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's going to be a... a Whenever he's on my show, I ask him for updates, and there's going to be some more interviews coming up. Um, there's a chance that Tweety and et cetera may be interviewed, and if so, I might be there for that. Oh, that'd be really cool. Hey, uh, uh, why don't you plug your... How do I go hear your interview with Gorman on the on the podcast, the show? Uh, they, you, a million different ways. You can go to scotthudson.blogspot.com. Or just search for The Ledge on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Outstanding. And it's live every week from uh, 6 to 8, right? Yes, on realpunkradio.com. Outstanding. Scott, thanks for being here, being back, and filling us in on Lydia. And we look forward to uh, hearing more from her. Awesome. This is The Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. Three forty-six on the Patrick Lally Show, Information One Thousand KSOO, and we were talking uh, yesterday with uh, Jamie Reedy of Indie Events and about the independent film series that he has been sponsoring and bringing to town. And we we're talking about a film uh, that's going to be down at Club David on Sunday uh, called Corrupt, and the director of that film, Dorothy Borum, is going to be in Sioux Falls for the screening of that on Sunday. And we got Dorothy on the line. Dorothy, thanks for. Uh, tuning us in here when on the patrick lally show 
Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm super excited to chat with you guys. So you're, tell us about Corrupt. It's, uh, uh, Jamie told us a little bit about it, and I'm looking at it. Uh, he, you know, it's kind of a uh, uh, possessed thriller. Uh, but how would you, how, tell us about your movie. Absolutely. I, you basically got it right. So the title is actually Corruptor. Corruptor. Thank yes. you. All good. And yeah, it falls in that subgenre of horror films that I'll just call demon possession. Yes. You know, you've got your like exorcism of Emily Rose and of course the classic exorcist. And so in this instance, what we have is we have a young couple that's moving in together for the first time, except there's also, they run into, I guess, a darkness, you could say, an entity, and that entity's name is Corruptor, and it begins to take them over, and then you get your classic horror movie tropes, your, your bodies, your blood, your priests, your weirdness, but all done on like a super sweet low budget. Yeah. So we have to be real creative. Yeah, you call yourself a micro-director, producer, and writer, um... That that has to, so it's all very low budget, but it make does that make you more creative? Do you think? Oh my gosh, yes! When you're working in micro budgets, every dollar that you have, you want to put on the screen, but you want to try and do it in an interesting way. So we're constantly balancing how much um, quality can we create in terms of how it looks and how it sounds, and then what can we do with what's on screen to make it interesting and rich and you know, detailed and something maybe you wouldn't have found in a Hollywood movie, something that's a little slicker, a little more formulaic, where I have the freedom to be a little more individual and weird. Mm -hmm. And you're from Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, That's right. I've lived in Lincoln for about 20 years. You could say I'm from there by now, probably. uh, Where did you, where do you originate from, if not Lincoln? I originally grew up in South Carolina and I made my way to Lincoln through like a gypsy period in my life that took me to like DC and Colorado and Los Angeles. But well, Lincoln is where it really stuck for me. It's a good place to land. Is it not? Is it, is it a good place to make film? You know, it really is. The great thing about Lincoln is there's a lot of creators that come through here or come and stay for a while because the university is close by. Mm-hmm. And so there's a really strong art community that kind of covers music and film and, you know, physical arts like painting and sculpture and other stuff like theater. So, yeah, there's a lot of different artists here that we get to work with. When you say low budget, what what are we talking about here? Because sometimes with indie films, we hear they, they made them for only $5 million or something like <laughs> that. You're, you're talking about something that's even more micro, correct? <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. So, right, that million-dollar film is... Certainly, if you're dealing with a low-budget film on the coast, the million bucks would not take you, I mean, very far at all. Mm-hmm. But in my scenario, we're looking at twenty, ten to $20,000. Okay. It's still a lot of money. How do you, how do you raise the money? Do, you, is, do the movies tend to pay for themselves, even on the micro sort of indie uh, circuit? It kind of depends on where they end up getting distributed, and that really the key. We were really fortunate that our first micro-budget film, which was called Wake the Witch, uh, was picked up by Netflix for about three years. Oh, great. So, yeah, its return 
was excellent. It was, we made money on that film. And that was wonderful as we were able to roll that over into future films. The rest of our money, we primarily try to raise it up front because I don't like being beholden to investors after the fact. Mm -hmm. The thing about a micro-budget is the money rolls in really slowly. So even though Wake the Witch was released in probably 2010, we still are getting little minuscule profits from where it is now on Amazon and a couple of other places. Well, that's, that's very, uh, is that, that's your most successful movie to date? That is correct. Yes. Well, that's outstanding. So the corruptor is here on Sunday at club David. I believe the screening is at six, but people can go to indie events on Facebook and find out more there. Um, or just show up, uh, the, uh, what are you? You're so you're coming up, right? But you're not coming oh, alone. Who's all Who's all coming in this uh, tour? Right. Well, I'm bringing with me my creative partner and the director of photography, who also produced Corruptor with me, and his name is Chad Hofstild. And we've been making features and short films together, web series for probably ten years. So he's we're like the right hand person for each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Uh, and why horror movies? You, you seem to be drawn to horror. And why are they so... What what draws us to these things? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. One is, hopefully my mom's not listening to this, <laughs> is that I blame my mom. My mom was totally into true crime when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. And murder mysteries. And so, you know, I would spend... We would have dinner, you know, table conversations that were like oh, that murder that happened down the road. Like, let's talk about that. This is like what happened. If I heard that this is what the crime scene looked like, or <laughs> we lived, and I lived um, out on what I guess Nebraska would kind of call a farm. It was a real old house out in the country. It belonged to my folks' um, family. And there was a lot of creepy history, ghost stories that surrounded it. So now, when I make horror movies, and my mother's always like, oh, Dorothy, why? <laughs> and I'm like, Really? But here's the other truth of it, just to quickly say, is horror movies, you can sell them, even if they're low budget and they don't have recognizable actors. Really? People just like to watch them. Yes. There are three things that you that are easier to sell, and that is um, movies that have Christian themes, strong Christian themes, mm-hmm. horror movies, and movies that um, really reach out to uh, the LGBT community. Interesting. That's a, and so you found your niche there in the horror. I suppose, you know, like Blair Witch Project and that sort of thing, they started as very kind of low budget. That one probably had more of a, a budget than you have, but it's it's tapped into that genre and created that genre a little bit too. Totally right. Yeah. Right on. Uh, Dorothy Borum, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to chat with us today. You'll be here on Sunday. The screening is at 6 o'clock of Corruptor. It's at Club David. Uh, if you're into horror movies at all, and I know a lot of you folks are, go down there and, and meet Dorothy. Here, uh, maybe you're doing a Q&A, that sort of thing. That's right, yeah. Outstanding. Uh, I appreciate you taking some time today, Dorothy. Such a pleasure, Patrick. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 3.56 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. Yeah, we got a shiver in the dark. Horror movies, man. Ooh, I don't know. That's not really my thing, but it sounds like an interesting film, and I love, I love the idea of small independent filmmakers coming to town. That's pretty cool. 
And uh, again, that movie is called Corruptor, and it's playing down at Club David on Sunday, 6 o'clock. Pretty sure that's right. You can find it all on Facebook if you need to look it up again. Hey, everybody, coming up on December 14, 15, 16, 17, it's Christmas at the Cathedral. That's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the Cathedral of St. Joseph. All four nights at 7.30 p.m. plus a 1 p.m. performance on Saturday and 2 p.m. on Sunday. Proceeds will benefit the Bishop Dudley House and Cathedral of St. Joseph. Ongoing care and maintenance endowments. Learn more at ccfesd.org or just Google Christmas at the Cathedral. You'll find it. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we're going to talk to Sam Trebilcock. He's a transportation planner with the city of Sioux Falls. And we're going to talk about a big press conference they have coming up tomorrow regarding the League of American Bicyclists. Yes, bicyclists, our designation, and uh, find out how friendly we are for bicycling. I, I believe we're currently at the bronze level. We'll talk to Sam. He probably won't give us all the details, but we'll see what we can squeeze out of him, and it's always good to talk to Sam. So, And then uh, after that, Dr. Kirk Griffin, he is a Sanford researcher, and we're going to chat about diabetes and how diabetes is becoming a bigger and bigger problem across the world and some of the things they're doing at Sanford to fight type 1 diabetes in particular. That's all coming up in the second hour of the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we welcome on the phone Mr. Sam Trebilcock. Sam is a transportation planner with the City of Sioux Falls, and I wanted to talk to Sam because he's got a big press conference tomorrow that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Uh, So as a transportation planner, Sam, you... Uh, are re- also responsible for a lot of the stuff the city does with bicycles and bicycles as transportation. That's part of your job, right? That's correct. I mean, we do a lot of things to try to improve bicycling and working with uh, a lot of people that are interested in improving bicycling in the community. So, yes. Hey, so I've been having this, by the way, before we get to your press conference, I've been having this uh, Twitter war with Jeff Turn from uh, ESPN 99.1. Okay, yeah. Because he's been uh, he's been kind of drilling me on uh, you know riding my bike all the time and riding uh-huh. in the winter and stuff, and he wants he his contention is that bikes should not be on the road. Now I know I'm I'm just kind of dropping this on you, Sam. Okay. What's, what's the answer to that question? Why should bicycles be allowed on city streets? Well, I mean I think it's really important to note, um, you know, if you're a, a bicyclist that wants to be able to move from one part of the community to the other, what is the safest way to do that? And a lot of people would uh, first assume that, you know, it's going to be on the sidewalk. But when we look at our accident, uh, you know, our crash statistics on um, with bikes and cars, most of those are happening with bikes coming off the sidewalk. And a lot of that's because you can't, it's difficult, if you think about it, it's really difficult to see a bicyclist over on the sidewalk. And a lot of times if you're on the sidewalk, you're, going to be going against traffic and people are making right-hand turns and they're not looking for you. They just aren't looking for you. So when you're in the street, um, 
you know, you're, you're in, in the view shed of, of the vehicle. And certainly the law does state that that is, um, that it is fully within your rights to be a vehicle um, as, as a bicycle rider. And that's because that's, you know, in a lot of places, a lot of times the best place to be. Um, now, there's, there's going to be some streets that it's going to be really busy and hard to do, but, um, you know, in terms of, like I said, on the sidewalk, it can be really dangerous. And it's the law. And, and it's the law. bicycles are vehicles. Now, what do you say to people when they say, if you're a vehicle, you should have to go a minimum speed, you should have to uh, abide by all the laws, which I agree with, but this whole notion of you're, you're slower so you're in the way, what's, what's your response to that? Well, I mean, think about it. How many vehicles are out there, um, whether or not it be, you know, uh, you know, some maintenance vehicles or if it's a snowplow, and you have to slow down for those things. Well, we don't tell those things to get off the street. I mean, it's the same thing with a bicycle. And the bicycle, typically a bicyclist, and you know this, Patrick, when you're, you're, you're riding, um, you're going to get out of the way when you can get out of the way. And that's really what the law talks about, is that when, when, when you don't have enough room, you can take your lane. When you do have enough room in the lane, then you should move closer to that curb to, to be able to get out of the way for the car to go by. So I think it works. And um, you know, we're trying to look for other ways. I mean, and we know a lot of bicyclists, people that want a bicycle, aren't comfortable doing it in, in, in traffic. But a lot of bicyclists are, too, and, and when it's the, certainly the safer way to go. Thanks for that, Sam. Sam Trebilcock, he is a, a transportation planner with the city of Sioux Falls. Now, to your news. I'm gonna, by the way, I'm going to get that file, and then I'm going to send it to turn. So I really appreciate <laughs> you doing that for me. Um, the, uh, you have a press conference tomorrow to announce uh, our standing with the League of American Bicyclists. Tell us what that's all about. Well, really for, you know, about the last, I think it's the last 12 years or so, we've uh, applied to the League of American Bicyclists as part of the program for the bicycle-friendly communities. Over the past um, couple of different times, we've um, been fortunate enough to be a, a bronze-level community, and, and so we have applied again. And Because mm-hmm. um, you, you do so about every four years, you're required to, to update that, that application. And, so we did that, and, and now this is a, um, the, the press conference to announce, you know, our standing within the, uh, that bicycle-friendly community program again, where we want everybody to, to we're actually embargoed by the League of American Bicyclists mm-hmm. to, to talk specifically about it. Um, a lot of people can guess what it is and whatever you might think, but um, we want people to come out to the press conference too and, and hear a little about what we're talking about. Some of it's you know, celebrating some of our accomplishments, some of the things that we're doing, or some of the things that we want to work on. Mm-hmm. And we just updated our bicycle plan over the last couple of years, and those are things that we want to work towards to, and as you know, to, to make even a better and more friendly community. So and that press conference is tomorrow morning, right? Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock here at City Hall, yes. So you just show up at City Hall, 9th and, uh, and Dakota? 9th and Dakota, yep. yeah. Outstanding. That's a nice place to have a press conference, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> just outside the mayor's office there, right? <laughs> right outside the mayor's office. That'd yeah. be great. Um, so we're a bronze city right now, which is an accomplishment in and of itself. Uh, without going, without saying what we are now, uh, that leap to be a silver city is 
appreciable, is it not? It is. Um, you know, there isn't a huge number of uh, silver, there's gold, and then there's just a couple in the entire country that are considered platinum-level communities. Um, and it does, it, and, and, you know, I think each, each time you do this, all the communities in the pool are making advancements because everybody's, um, you know, seeing the um, advantages of, of being bicycle-friendly. So, um, you know, that's something that we're just trying to stay within the game, too. Outstanding. The pre- big press conference is tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. at City Hall. And uh, if you can't make it down there, look for, look for news reports across all platforms. I, I'm sure I'll put together a little something for uh, KSO.com so you can look for it there. Sam, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes today. I appreciate it, Patrick. Thank you. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 418 on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. And we are welcoming back to the program Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher with Sanford Health specializing in type 1 diabetes, correct? That is correct. And uh, you have been working with Sanford now for how long? Oh, got here just about uh, four years ago. A little, coming up in four and a half now. Yeah. Um, so, and you were brought here specifically to work on type 1 diabetes and part of the big, the gift and to, you know, find a cure for type 1 diabetes. Um, and uh, first of all, I think it's, you know, how's it going, Kurt? <laughs> it's a long game. Um, and... You know, I think things are actually going remarkably well. I was really brought in to jumpstart clinical trials, and we have a couple people working on the basic science side of things to help get new ideas that we can eventually bring into uh, people. But really, in terms of making faster advances, we're trying to see what can we actually, what's available now that we can actually apply in people with type 1 diabetes and try to do something about the underlying disease rather than just get, treating it with insulin. Right. And so, you know, I, I noticed I'd heard about uh, a some news recently about a uh, oral insulin, because the big problem, obviously, is, you know, you either have to have a pump that injects it straight into your body if, or you give yourself shots every day. Right. That's, that's a huge uh, burden for people. And um, that if you could just take a pill, it would be better. Right. And unfortunately, when you hear oral insulin, you think, oh, I don't need a shot anymore. That's not quite what they're trying to do. It is more trying to advance the uh, immune aspects of it. Uh, So type 1 diabetes at its heart is an autoimmune disease. It's the immune system is attacking those cells that make insulin. Uh, and insulin is a, it's a, basically a small protein in the, as a hormone. So when you take it by mouth, your stomach is really good at digesting that type of food. Mm-hmm. So when you take it by mouth, it doesn't actually come in and give you an effective insulin to lower your blood sugar. But if you think about all the foods that we eat, and yes, some people do have some pretty significant food allergies, but most of us don't. And a lot of that is when we process the food that we eat, we're presenting it to the immune system in such a way that says, this is not something that's invading and attacking us. This is food, and we need to learn to, to live with it and leave it alone. So we're really trying to harness that same machinery 
And this also goes back to, you know, about 20 years ago, there was a diabetes prevention trial, type 1, where they took people that were relatives of people with type 1 diabetes and had, uh, they tried a number of things. They tried giving some people insulin shots to see if they could prevent it. They tried uh, giving oral insulin. And what they found is overall not a big effect, but some of the people who already had antibodies and were it's basically think of it as a marker that your body's reacting to insulin inappropriately, those people look like it might help. And that set up the whole oral insulin project through TrialNet. And to give you an idea of how big this is, TrialNet, at that point, uh, when, when they closed enrollment for the study, they had screened 138,000 people. Wow. So, th you know, how big is Sioux Falls? Yeah, exactly. So I picture screening everybody, and this is an international study. And from that, they found 2,000 people that qualified f for the oral insulin study because they had antibodies against insulin. And then from that, they kind of whittled down, and they wound up with about 500 that actually completed the study. So it's a pretty big sieve to try to find, you know, those needles in the, the many haystacks. Here. Yeah. And so the they published the study about it uh, in the yeah. Journal of American Medical JAMA, basically. JAMA. Yeah, I always forget what the acronym stands for. <laughs> Journal of the American Medical Association. There we go. So, and yeah. and and they found is it is it is it encouraging? Not encouraging with the oral insulin? I think the polite way to put it might be disappointing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it happens. It does. <laughs> uh, and this is where. You know, we, we have something that seems like it should be a good idea, seems like it should work. There's some preliminary evidence to say, yes, we should go ahead and do this very large, very complex study. And we come out of it and go, boy, that's really kind of disappointing. Because if you look at the bulk of the people who came into the study, there did not seem to be a benefit to this. Mm. Um, where it gets potentially academically interesting is if you look at some subgroups it, there's particularly one group where they had multiple antibodies, not just insulin, but to some of the other proteins that show you have reactions that lead to type 1. And surprisingly, they, they weren't the ones that were really early. They were the ones who already had some defects in insulin production. So they, they didn't have diabetes by our classic definition, mm -hmm. but they were starting to have slightly high blood sugars. Those people seem to be slowed down by this. That's interesting. So it, it's kind of interesting. It kind of makes this question kind of what we think is going on, how this leads up to it. Um, it's not at this point readily applicable to anything because we're not testing kind of the general world for who has antibodies who might fit into this little cubbyhole. Um, but that's something that down the road we hope to be able to have a better way of figuring out who's really at risk. And Sanford was part of this, participated. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we had patients here, and, you know, as I said, it's an international study uh, through Diabetes Trial Net. But, yeah, we, we had a number of patients that we followed here uh, in Sioux Falls, and uh, people really come from all over to try to be a part of this, see what they can do to uh, slow this down, especially these are all f kids who had family members with type 1, so they knew what they were up against and pretty highly motivated families. Interesting. We're talking with Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher at Sanford Health and uh, Sanford Research and is an expert in type 1 diabetes, which is one of the uh, uh, focuses of Sanford Research. Um, so this, the oral insulin part of that was primarily type 1, right? All of that was All type, type 1. It was Kids who did not have type 1 yet, but had family, family members with type 1 and were at risk for 
moving on to that and had evidence that their bodies were already starting to head in that direction. And this is, of course, is type one is what we think of as juvenile diabetes often or, but it can, yeah. it can occur in different ages. Yeah. Right? That, that, that was the old name for it yeah. because classically it's, it's mostly children that get it. You kind of have two peaks, one kind of preschool age, another kind of in adolescence with puberty that kind of lifts a barrier. Um, but we definitely see it, adults who come down with it and mm-hmm. a lot of times they're not really recognized as type one. Yeah. And so type one, it attracts the attention uh, because it's children in large measure. Uh, and that's why one of the reasons I think Sanford was focused on it so sharply, um, because that's where you see, you know, kids who are now looking at an entire life of trying to take insulin through various means. Yeah. It's gotten easier, but it used to be even more difficult. Well, easier is relative. And yeah. I think, you know, if, if we look back to you know, when I was in training and we mm-hmm. had different source of insulin, it was much harder to manage. Uh, the real problem is it takes constant vigilance. Mm-hmm. Every time you eat, you need to count your carbs. You need to figure out how much insulin you need to take. You need to be checking your blood sugar, see if you need extra insulin for that. And it's you tough don't for get a, a break. No, it's tough for a kid to do that too. Kids, families, you know, it's, you know, you have little kids, you know, that toddlers that the parents, you know, have to kind of run around and keep up with them. And I don't know when the last time you were around a toddler at mealtime, but, <laughs> um, you know, you can't really predict how much you're going to eat before they're done. <laughs> right. And so you see cases with kids where they'll, they'll basically crash when you're not expecting. I mean, I don't know if you ever we expect hope. it, but. I mean, we, we know there are certain things that make you more likely to crash. Crash meaning having a low blood sugar, right. having you know an insulin reaction would be the adult term a lot of people would use. And a lot of times it's, you know, they didn't eat everything that you thought they did and you gave them insulin to cover more than they ate. It's all about balance. Yeah. Or they were more active than you expected them to be. And that makes the insulin work better. And then down goes the blood sugar. And the key thing is monitoring, keeping on top of it. Um, you know, we think about the, all the horrible things that can come from diabetes mm-hmm. and the huge toll it takes on people and the huge burden financially for our whole society. Yeah. Um, a lot of that we can prevent by keeping people under tight control. Yeah. We are talking with Dr. Kurt Griffin. He is a uh, researcher with Sanford Health and he focuses on type 1 diabetes. We've been talking about a study uh, about oral insulin, but we've got some other stuff to talk about here. So you're going to want to stick with us through the news. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 433 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we are continuing to chat with Dr. Kurt Griffin. He is a researcher type of type 1 diabetes over at Sanford Research. And uh, we've had Kurt on the program before, and it's, it's fascinating work. And we're going to talk a little bit about type 2 in a minute, but I want to con- continue this conversation about type 1 a little bit. So explain the difference to people now, because uh, we were talking off air a little bit, and I said they really should have different names because they're related, they're similar, but they're different afflictions, type 1 and type 2. Explain the difference yeah. to us. So as, as you mentioned kind of uh, a little bit before we went on the break, you know, we used to call it juvenile diabetes, and then he had adult onset, or people would call it insulin-dependent diabetes versus non-insulin-dependent for type 1 and type 2, respectively. What it comes down to is type 1 is a defect in insulin production that classically is a defect that arises after your immune system, which is supposed to keep us healthy. That immune system attacks the cells that makes insulin, that make insulin, and you can't make insulin anymore. 
And the only treatment we have for that is replacing insulin, which, as we were talking earlier, is neither trivial nor uh, really practicable in the way we would like it to be. Right. Type 2 is kind of at least starts the other way around, where you uh, still make insulin, but classically between, you know, a variety of genes, and there are at least 20-some genes that are involved in the risk factors— But the added factor that we see day-to-day in this country especially is extra weight and inactivity. That makes insulin not work so well. And kind of the analogy I use to with, you know, my my patients is, you know, maybe, you know, you're the good kid, but you imagine your brother's sitting on the couch and your mom asks him to do something and he kind of doesn't hear them. What what happens next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mom's going to yell at him. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happens is your body starts making more and more insulin to overcome what is essentially resistance to that insulin. And you can maintain your blood sugars for a while. Sometimes you get something, big words, acanthosis, nigrocans. It means mm-hmm. dark, scaly skin, you know, around your neck and your various other places where your body folds. Um, that's a sign that your insulin levels are high and your skin's overgrowing because of that. And at a certain point, you can't keep up anymore. And... Instead of making so much insulin and still keeping it under control, now you're still making as much insulin as you possibly can, and it's not enough. Now your blood sugar starts going up. Mm. And that's type 2 diabetes. So diabetes mellitus is sugar diabetes. It's both type 1 and type 2 have high blood sugar, and that high blood sugar is you know, what we say causes all those problems that we, we try to avoid, but uh, kind of coming out from different mechanisms. Yeah, they're caused by different things, yeah. to put it very bluntly. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you said something there that kind of freaked me out, and I didn't know about the skin. Your skin is, what, yeah, if you what have, is that? If you have really high levels of insulin, insulin is a growth factor. And in fact, when you make growth hormone, there's another hormone called insulin-like growth factor, which, guess what, is like insulin. Yeah. But it's how growth <laughs> hormone works. Uh, and so that insulin will actually bind to the IGF-1 receptor and actually cause the skin to grow. And you kind of, particularly around the neck, under your armpits, and your groin, uh, around your waist, you'll get, it'll kind of turn dark and scaly and thick. And some people say, it's like, you know, I've seen some parents you know, take their kids and try to scrub it off. And you can scrub some of it off, but it's not dirt. It's It looks dirty, but it's kind of this thick, scaly skin that's a sign that your insulin levels are really high. That's amazing. I didn't know that. We're talking with Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher with Sanford Health, and he is specializing in type 1 diabetes. Um, so type 2, first of all, I want to ask you, you've talked about this before, but this, uh, it's called the T-Rex. So, and it applied, before we get off type 1, I want to talk about that because um, you're doing, it's amazing to me. So ex- explain T-Rex to me again. All right. So T-Rex is kind of our current study that we're doing to try to see what we can do to rebalance the immune system. So as I said earlier, type 1, the immune system loses that balance. We're supposed to leave our body alone and starts attacking those cells that we need to make insulin. Normally we have, you know, you think white blood cells as part of the immune system. A lot of those white blood cells are a type of cell called a lymphocyte, and those come in a bunch of flavors. Uh, The key ones are T cells because they come from the thymus, And those, again, come in a bunch of different flavors. And you have effector T cells that kind of drive an attack. And then you have regulatory T cells that are kind of our mechanism to kind of demobilize after the war is over and let's bring everybody home, send the National Guard back to their families. People with type 1 diabetes, when they're first diagnosed, 
don't have as many T-regs as the rest of us, and the ones they have don't work well. So what we're trying to do is actually taking, we're actually taking kids within 100 days of being diagnosed with type 1. We know they have diabetes. We can, you know, kind of justify, you know, doing something. But they're still early enough, they're still making insulin. So we're trying to preserve that as best we can. And what we do is uh, we take the kids to the blood bank. And, you know, just like you know, when I go to the blood bank and donate mm-hmm. a unit of blood, you know, it goes into a bag on the floor uh, coming out of a kid. But we kind of need that much to get enough T-regs purified out to do this. Um, they get shipped to a very special clean manufacturing facility in Mountain View, California, where they get expanded. And if you go from a couple million to billions, now we give them back to the same kid they came from without it filling that gap that they were missing those T-regs before. So we're not trying to over-suppress, but we're just trying to bring the immune system back into balance. So uh, you, you put the cells back in them. How long does that last? I mean, is it, is it a situation where it, you're just topping off the tank or is it, does it like have a culture and it? it'll grow them? That's, that's a great question. Oh, thanks. And, <laughs> um, you know, back when I was first learning about these, they used to be called suppressor T cells because they suppress the effector T cells. Uh, now we call them regulatory T cells or Tregs. And at least what I learned in the textbooks was Tregs don't live that long. So yeah, is this topping off the tank and then they're gone? Um, the preliminary side, this was all kind of developed by a guy Jeff Bluestone at UCSF, who's kind of a preeminent immunologist who developed the techniques to do this. And at UCSF, they did a handful of adult patients as the first safety study. Uh, and that's part of what lets us now do it in kids. And what they did and what we're doing as well, too, is when we grow the cells and expand them, we feed them glucose that has a heavy isotope of hydrogen. Okay, so it's labeled deuterium. And basically what that lets us do is it's not radioactive, so there's no safety issue, mm-hmm. which is important, especially in kids. Yeah. You know, the, the, you they're not walking around, yeah. they're not glowing in the dark. <laughs> um, but it lets us trace that, and we can find that using something called mass spectrometry. And what they found was, yeah, after you give these cells in, you kind of peak after a couple of days, and then they start coming down. But even a year later, you can still find a good number of these cells are labeled and show they're the ones that were expanded. They're still there. They still look like regulatory T cells. And some of them at least have some other markers on them that make them look more like they have what we call a memory phenotype. So if you think about, you know, when we get uh, immunizations, we have an initial response, and then we have these cells that stick around for a long time. As long as they're not being stimulated, they just kind of sit there. But when they get stimulated, they're able to respond very quickly. And we now have T-regs that were expanded that go back in that look like they have those same kind of markers, like they should be able to fill that role. And I don't know if one dose is going to be enough to be done permanently, but there's at least, they stick around a lot longer than we thought. And that's what you're studying. And as we're doing now, uh, we're going to be doing at least 111 kids in the study. Uh, that'll give us a little better answer as to just how long it lasts, how does it work in kids, what's going to be the right dose in kids, and go from there. And it takes a long time. I mean, it's not something you're going to find out in six months, right? Uh, that, that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're planning to retire in this study, right? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that old. Okay, good, good. Uh, no, but it, it's realistically, you know, these studies take somewhere between a year and a half and two years just to recruit into them. Our primary endpoint is when that last kid has been in it for at least a year. Mm-hmm. And so you're already talking two to three years from the time you open to the time you have your, your first look at critical data. 
um, that doesn't count the time that goes into planning for it, getting the regulatory approval, doing all these things up front, which is easily another one to two to ten years, depending on the study. Yeah. But in terms of Sanford's mission and um, trying to find a cure, this is this is the point of the spear, correct? Yeah. And I think if you look at most of the things that have been tried in this uh, space, you know, this kind of nuance that recently diagnosed, you're still making some insight on what can we do to preserve it. That's where the whole field is focused. And most of the studies so far has been taking drugs that are already available, already approved, already used in children, so we have a safety profile, mostly coming from rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. Uh, so adults with rheumatoid arthritis, kids with juvenile arthritis, uh, there are a lot of these drugs that modulate the immune system that we've said, okay, well, they're already approved. We, we think they're, they're going to be pretty safe. Let's try it in type 1 diabetes. Most of those haven't worked as well as we would like. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of them may delay progression by six months, maybe nine months in some cases, but that's not kind of what we're after here. Right, right. Um, the Treg study is the first one that we're doing with cell-based therapy, and um, you know, I I remain optimistic, but you know, we'll, we'll have to see what it goes. And I'm completely blinded as to who's getting which arm of the study, yeah. high dose, low dose. Uh, so you just get we'll data. See. Yeah. We're here with Kirk Griffin. He is a doctor at uh, Sanford Research, and he works on type 1 diabetes. We're actually going to talk a little bit about type 2 diabetes because there's some interesting new numbers about type 2, and that's, I think, uh, we're talking more lifestyle there, but we will get more into that after the break. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 447 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we're talking with Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher with Sanford Health, specializing in type 1 diabetes. And we're going to change up the subject just a little bit and talk about type 2. Uh, even though this is not your point of research, you probably know more about type 2 diabetes than, say, me. So we're going to go with that. Um, the, there was a study out, and I was kind of fascinated by this. It said that basically diabetes worldwide is worse than we thought, and that by 2045, 693 million people will have diabetes and that, it, that the world spends more than $720 million, $20 billion on healthcare expenditures related to diabetes. That's just, that's amazing. But the greatest rise in Southern Asia, Middle East, and Africa, I mean, that's just kind of stunning how many people actually could have diabetes. Yeah. And that's worldwide, and that's a huge impact. And if you think about type 1 diabetes, I mentioned, you know, there are 27 genes that give you a predisposition. But after that, it, there's a lot of lifestyle influence, too. Mm -hmm. Weight gain, sedentary, or, you know, lack of physical activity have a huge impact. And if you think about those places that you mentioned, you know, Southeast Asia, um, Africa, a lot of those you're seeing places that used to be subsistence farming, very poor, you know, barely get enough to, to, to mm -hmm. eat and survive. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden now they're becoming much more westernized and their diet is westernized and their activity is westernized. And instead of going out working in a field behind an ox, you're in a call center answering mm -hmm. phones. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not too surprising. And, you know, we've seen that too, you know, classically, if you look at, you know, some of the Southwest Indian American, Native American populations where, you know, all of a sudden there's a border between the U.S. and Mexico and on the U.S. side, they get, you know, flour and lard mm -hmm. and things like that. And on the Mexico side, they're still subsistence farmers, same families, very different phenotypes and very different rates of diabetes. And in the United States, 
uh, we have, uh, there's, what, what are the numbers in terms of the rates of diabetes, type two diabetes in American populations? Yeah. So if we want to look at the American population, uh, out of the same study, they, they include the U.S. as part of the world, uh, Centers for Disease Control um, also tracks and has very similar numbers. Right now, we're sitting about 13% of adults in this country have type 1 diagnosed. or type are diagnosed. Yeah. Um, that's about one out of seven and a half. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a little more even than, you know, the breast cancer figures that we hear about that, you know, everybody yeah. gets pretty uptight about. And again, you know, the, this is something where we might be able to do something about it. The thing that you kind of hinted at just right there is, you know, what's diagnosed, what's not, you know, but at least a third of the people in this country who have type 2 diabetes and, you know, have high blood sugars and are having damage accruing, mm-hmm. they don't even know it. That's amazing. Now, how, if I didn't, if my blood sugar is high than it should be on a daily basis, but I don't pay any attention to it, what, what would I feel? Are there things that I would feel yeah. that would be triggers? Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is it comes on so gradually mm-hmm. that you might not notice. And, you know, objectively, if you measure it, maybe you're drinking a little bit more, maybe you're going to the bathroom a little more. Obviously, we measure blood sugar and, you know, after you eat, your blood sugar is going to go up. Uh, even if by the time you wake up in the morning fasting, you can fight it down a little bit, you're, you're still kind of having damage occur at that point. And you think you feel kind of fine. And a lot of times you take people like that and you get them tuned up a little bit, get a little bit of medicine, help the blood sugars come down. Mm-hmm. And that's when they can kind of say, hey, you know, I feel better now. I didn't think I felt bad before. I felt normal. Right. But now, yeah, I actually, I have more energy. I can think better. Life is better. Yeah. And it's it's the old the old saw, right? And this is hard for us to hear sometimes. Eat a little bit better, drink a little bit less, <laughs> and and get exercise. Exercise is really key because it'll help with some of the other things like the weight gain. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, at least as importantly, exercise makes insulin work better. So if you can only make so much and you're kind of at that limit and you exercise a little bit, all of a sudden now that insulin that you can make works better and your blood sugar is doing better. Yeah, that's amazing. And because it's it's ultimately uh, some it's one of the few things in this world that is a health problem that you have control over. I mean, smoking obviously can cause lung cancer. Absolutely, that's a big and, and, and a lot of other bad things. So yeah. that that's probably the number one, and that's a really bad combination with diabetes too. That gangs really? up on you. Yeah, bad combination. Same thing. Blood pressure would be the other thing where you might have some control over. It. You could, certainly we have ways to you know treat it, but it also gangs up with diabetes. But similarly, you know, blood pressure. Your blood pressure is a little high. You feel fine, mm-hmm. but until you, you know, don't. Until you don't. Yeah. And diabetes can be the same way. Right now, actually, we're getting better defining what is pre-diabetes, where, you know, your blood sugar is not really high to the point we say you have diabetes, but it's not completely normal either. And right now, already in this country, a third of the adults fit into that category. One-third of Americans. One-third. And that means they're at high risk of progressing to overt diabetes. That's, and, the, and the implications of that are what, what happens when you get diabetes when you're older? Well, I mean, if, if, if you're really old... You know, if you think about some of the long-term complications, that those come from many years of poor treatment. So if you don't get until you're 80, yeah. maybe we don't need to worry as much about it. But, you know, for those of us, you know, of a certain age, let's say middle-aged, mm-hmm. uh, which is where it starts to really tick up in terms of the incidence, you know, you got a lot of years left to live, a lot of years where if it's not controlled right, you're accumulating damage, and then 
you know, diabetes, it doesn't necessarily kill you right away. It makes you suffer for mm-hmm. a long time. You know, it's still the number one cause of adult onset blindness, of kidney failure, of amputations on down the line. And you can do something about it. If you have any suspicion about it, you should probably, is there an easy test? It's probably an easy yeah. test. There's actually a pre-screening test. If you go, uh, CDC actually has a pre-diabetes screening test and it gets so many points for being so old, so many points if huh. your mother So you go had, online and do if, it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, certainly ask your doctor about it. You know, I yep. hate to sound like one of those pharma commercials. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, the, the, plenty of people to, uh, that are welcome to, more than happy to help test and, and walk you through it. Dr. Kirk Griffin, thanks for coming in today. It's great stuff, and uh, we'll have you back when you've cured diabetes. How's that sound? Uh, no? Hopefully before. A little bit? A little bit? Hopefully I'm still on the air. No pressure. Uh, thanks a lot. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 456 on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. The next radio clash by the clash, which means it's the end of the show, people. Radio clash is seeming on transmission, beaming from the mountain top using oral ammunition. Hey, during most of the month of December, everybody, there's a very important uh, project that's going on. Miracle on 41st Street Toy Drive. That's from December 1 through 24. Drop off a new toy, cash donation, or item of need at the Children's Inn gift wrapping booth in the Macy's Wing of the Empire Mall. Have your gifts wrapped at the booth for a cash donation to the Children's Inn. For a list of items of need, click on our website at ksoo.com. Drop-off bins will also be set up at the Washington Pavilion during the Tonic Solfa Holiday Concerts, December 1st and 2nd. A special thanks to the Great Plains Dental, Great Western Bank, and Excel Energy for helping sponsor this year's events. A fine, fine uh, project and helping a great cause, the Children's Inn. And also, you get your gifts wrapped. Like, well, I do it every year. And I have struggled with my gift wrapping abilities. Well, this is the solution, Dan. You go to the Children's Inn gift wrapping booth in the Macy's Wing of the Empire Mall, and I'm telling you, it's high-quality gift wrapping. you got to look into that. Your your gift recipients deserve high-quality wrapping. So there you go. Uh, Coming up tomorrow on the show, we have Sioux Falls mayoral candidate Jolene Letcher. The smart cyclist will be in for Weird Friends, and Jody Schwann will check in. It's going to be fun. And it's, what's tomorrow, Thursday? We're almost done with this week. It's good stuff. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. When I was 12 or 13, I started drinking occasionally and then smoking marijuana daily. By the time I was 14, I was trying other things, pills 